0: A DHL Cargo A300 is doing a routine flight from Baghdad to Bahrain, what caused this flight to return to Baghdad right after takeoff.
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
0: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hi. Hello. Hello. I mean, everything seems normal to you guys, but the last couple of weeks for us has been trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: we haven't recorded on time at all for two weeks. And that hasn't put us necessarily behind, because this will release on time, but it... Uh,
2: Cutting it a little close. Yeah. As part of that, you're probably looking at the timestamp at the end of this episode and thinking, that's not very long. No, well, it's not. <laughs> that's it's... actually not entirely our fault. You can thank Alan for recommending this incident
1: thanks alan actually i mean it is kind of interesting it's a it is an interesting episode but in that it is uh kind of short and there's just not a whole lot to to it so because this is going to be a really unconventional episode really unconventional story and that's just how it is so that this would have been a short episode no matter when we would have recorded it it doesn't matter that's just how this is
2: it's just nice that i didn't have to do a whole lot Nick still had to do a lot i i have basically nothing to contribute yeah also
0: welcome to
2: marie our new patron yes and thanks to brendan not the sometimes co-host um but brendan our patron for upping his patronage yeah, you get you get to join the flight crew. Woo! Woohoo!
0: Fancy. So, some big things coming up, friends. Keep your eyes open. I completed what our merch store will open up as. I finished everything. I made all the designs and put them on the shirts and things. There's quite a few things, and we got samples of pretty much Everything. Yeah. We got like $600 worth of samples.
1: <laughs> because we want to see what it's all like before and we quality try. Quality
0: to... before we let you guys, you know, spend your money on it.
1: So we spent our money on it instead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of it. But it's all going to get here hopefully in not too long so we can test it out. And then.
0: And you'll see some pictures of us most yes. likely wearing. And using said things.
1: And yes. hopefully while we're traveling, we will have said things, and so on and so forth.
2: And none of this would have been possible without your guys' help, whether that be through Patreon or even just listenership. It really means a ton, and it's helped us keep going through this and providing you guys more content. Yeah.
0: So then you can support us by wearing us on your body. <laughs> Or or having us in your house.
1: Yes, many many a gift item thing. Yes. (laughs) Many things coming.
0: I will say that most of the stuff that I made, I tried to make sure it wasn't super expensive. Some things are
2: because of the companies that they go through. But on that note, we support a lot of podcasts in various ways. And we know that merch can get expensive for podcasts. And we wanted to
1: not do that so much. So we tried. We, we we looked around different places to find a place that was reasonably priced.
0: We also don't get a bunch of profit from any of the merch items.
2: We get probably a couple dollars per item. We mostly wanted to make it available to you at a reasonable cost. Yeah.
1: Because we want you to wear our stuff and show us off.
0: <laughs> and I hate like when I really like a podcast and I want to You know, get merch from them that I have to spend $25 for a t-shirt. That's
1: ridiculous. We're not greedy. We're just kind of trying to cover operating costs pretty much.
0: Yeah. And (laughs) even if like nothing comes out of it, I would prefer that you get a deal and like it rather than spending a bunch of money on it or not getting it because you can't afford it. You know what I mean? So there's some extravagant stuff on there. I'm not going to we're not going to like detail too too much because some of it I want it to be a little bit of a surprise so that if you want to get it, you can. There's some things that are pretty pricey that are pricey no matter where you go because yeah. they're just expensive to make and to personalize and
2: yeah. The the one item that I would say that is expensive somewhat unexpectedly if you just shop around for not merchandise items um backpack
1: yeah i was gonna say backpacks
2: yeah so it's not gonna be cheap but i mean it's pretty much the most versatile tool you could buy yeah
1: i want one eventually because it's one of the only things we didn't get
2: i want one and yeah
1: eventually i want one i want yeah for traveling and stuff i want one cool.
2: yeah so when we travel we just have it on the back people are like what's that and i'm like Let me tell you something. We're also going to be that crew of people that has everything matching, everything branded.
1: Yes. Yeah. We're talking about it. It's like, man, if only they made, like, tuxes (laughs) with the custom logo on it.
0: Yeah. So keep your eyes open. There will be a merch page on the website, um, and we'll let you know when it goes live. Uh, You will also be able to buy stuff from our Facebook page uh, if you decide that you don't want to go to the website for whatever reason. That's still pretty far in the future. We want to double check and make sure all the prints turn out okay. If we need to change anything, you know, just so that we give you good products instead of yeah, trash. trash. But this will
1: so. hopefully be a way for you guys to uh, continue to support us or support us anyways. Especially for those of you that don't want to make the, like, the commitment per month on Patreon and get it. Uh, hopefully this is a way like you can show off your support whatever it is
2: speaking of patreon that will also be an added benefit to our patrons as you will get a discount on our merch yes
1: yeah. that is true
2: and we'll talk about that in the post episode because
0: the all have patrons access. those have that affects you so like i said keep your eyes open you'll see that when it comes live all right i think that's it for uh housekeeping stuff so on that note what are we covering today nick okay That's a complicated question.
1: Yeah, it is a complicated question, because this doesn't have a flight number.
0: Yeah, I realized that when I was trying to put that in the newsletter. Yeah. I was like,
2: I don't know what this
1: is. This has a uh, tail number.
2: (laughs) The tail number is Oscar, Oscar, Delta, Lima, Lima.
1: Yep, thanks. It was a pretty easy one. But it's a DHL A300. I was really surprised it didn't have a flight number, but uh, they probably do that on purpose. We'll talk about that in a bit. This occurred... On the 22nd of November of 2003, this is an A300B4-203F. Okay, really complicated, but it's an A300-200, so it was a heftier version of the of the A300, and it was a freighter conversion, F for freighter. Freighter, yeah. Yep. It
2: previously was a passenger plane.
1: Right. So this was converted to carry cargo for DHL. This was a scheduled flight from Baghdad International Airport to Bahrain International Airport.
2: What do you know about Baghdad this time of history?
1: Yeah, in 2003.
0: Not good. Uh I'm trying to think of the name of the war. Uh, Iraq war. Iraq. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's in
2: Iraq.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's in Iraq. <laughs> I know that there's not good stuff going on in Iraq.
1: So. Yeah. So, yes, war. <laughs> war. <laughs> The captain for the flight was Eric Genote. He was 38 years old. He had 3,300 hours total at the time as a captain, which is pretty low for a captain on a wide body.
2: I think the air disasters episode, which is where we got most of our uh, information. Yep,
1: because there's no report for this, by the way.
2: Said that he had only been captain for a year. Oh, that's not very long.
1: Yes, more than half of his time, his total time was on the A300, though. So majority of his time was... On this airplane. I mean,
0: could be worse. Yes. We've seen captains with less experience.
1: Yep. So he was from Belgium. The first officer is also from Belgium. He was Steve Michelsen. And it was a uh, Steve! Because it's S-T-E-E-V-E. <laughs> Steve! Steve! <laughs> He's 29 years old. He had 1,275 hours total at the time. So also pretty low. You might note that that is below uh, current standards for, uh, for hours. Which are fifteen hundred? So, well,
0: I mean, are yeah, twelve hundred
1: seventy-five.
0: Are they American based? No, nope. no. I mean, what other countries have the fifteen hundred?
1: Uh, well, this at would... this point, probably the EU as well. But
2: okay, but this is also before the two thousand nine Colgan Air crash, correct? Where right. the fifteen hundred hour became standard, right? So right. this is okay. still
1: even before then, and yeah. So he only had twelve hundred seventy-five hours total.
2: For reference, the Colgan Air episode is episode, episode four. four. It'll be linked on the website.
1: So both of our flying flight crew members are pretty low time. That said, the flight engineer, yes, still a flight engineer on an Airbus. What? Yeah, this is an early Airbus. That did still exist. So his name was Mario Rafael. He was 54 years old, and he had 13,400 hours. Wow. He was by far and away the most experienced person in the cockpit.
2: Yeah. Now, he was interviewed in the Air Disasters episode. It said that he lived in Scotland. Yes. He does not look Scottish. He does not have a Scottish
1: accent. (laughs) But he is from Scotland. That is, Quote, unquote. We'll go with it. Whatever the case. So this was one of two scheduled flights per day to and from Baghdad that DHL had that uh, was scheduled to carry mail to and from the soldiers in the field. okay. DHL had been contracted for the last six months to carry the mail. The war in Iraq had been raging for several years, and secret local army groups had been plundering supplies left behind by the Iraq military, and they were using these supplies to target civilians. Great!
2: Yeah, that's horrifying so things
1: are yeah lovely
2: like army supply stores are not being guarded so they're just getting raided constantly
1: yep because around this time was uh, when saddam hussein went into hiding and so they started claiming a bit of defeat but at that point the military had pretty much left all of their arms behind and literally left nobody protecting him so armed and
2: we're talking big arms like missiles and bombs Ooh.
1: Yeah, things, not good things. So, all these militant groups, these army groups, these secret groups, these little militias were able to go in and get a lot of weapons.
2: Millions of dollars worth.
1: Yeah. Because of this, the Baghdad airport was being patrolled by Apache helicopters around the security zone. The airport was a peaceful area inside a country wracked by war and chaos. So, the airport was, in general, kind of that one peaceful place. Because... Also, at the Baghdad International Airport, is a large base for the U.S. military, as well as joint base for militaries from all over the world. So, this was a peaceful place in that it was also very heavily guarded and armed. The crew prepared the plane for the flight out of Baghdad. Flying in and out of Baghdad was a stressful task, as they knew that they were prone to the fighting when at a low altitude, flying in and out of Baghdad. This put stress on the crews every time that they were scheduled to fly this route. A civilian aircraft had never been caught up in the war yet, however, so there was still
0: there, there was stress, but no no,
1: no real reason to worry. Planes lost, no to, civilian planes anymore. Yes, yeah,
0: lost to uh, warfare.
1: Yeah. Separately on that day, Claudine Vernier Pallier, a journalist from the Paris Match, a, mag- a French magazine had put herself directly into the thick of the danger in the area when she agreed to do the one thing that very few people were ever able to do at that time. She met with a Fedayeen group directly to try to dive deeper into what drives them to fight the war. Now... This is a terrorist group. This is a terrorist group.
2: That she is interviewing in person.
1: (laughs) Yes. She got to go interview them under the the precedent that she would literally be going there with her interpreter and it would just be the two of them alone.
0: And a photographer.
1: And a photographer, yes. You're correct.
0: That's a horrible idea.
1: Yep. Like I said, she was traveling with an interpreter and a photographer and they were all loaded into a car and then driven around in circles for a while to make them lose their bearings. They were taken to a remote location and removed from the cars for the interview. They began asking questions. They were told that they would get to witness a special operation that day. Not a good thing. Uh Uh-oh.
0: Not when you're talking to a terrorist group.
1: Yeah. The men began unloading some heavy arms from the vehicles. Meanwhile, back at the airport, the flight started their engines and began taxiing to the runway. The air traffic control at the airport was handled by the Australian Air Force. Of all things. For some reason. Yep. This is kind of common in war zones, though. They split tasks. The air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff. The flight took off normally and retracted the gear and began climbing away. Back on the ground, the reporter noticed that the group was asked to point their cars in all different directions so that they can get away in different directions. Not a good sign. The reporter then asked these men what the special operation was. She received an answer that surprised her, and at first she could not believe. They told her that they were going to shoot down a plane. Oh no. I bet you can guess where this is going. Yeah. She was told that they had been using SAM, or Surface-to-Air missiles, 7, heat-seeking missiles, to shoot down planes, and they had made several unconfirmed claims of shooting down planes and killing many people. This made her skeptical, because she hadn't heard of any of these things they were claiming they had done. So they claimed they had shot down planes, they had killed over 70 people in plane shoot-downs, and none of this had been reported anywhere, so she was skeptical of what they were telling her. She was told by these men that they had acquired a SAM or surface-to-air missile 14 instead, recently, and they only had three missiles for it. But they believed that this would be a far more effective missile than the SAM-7. They were then told to stand back while one of the men aimed for the sky with the large shoulder-launched missile launcher. Everybody scattered and watched. At that moment, the journalists realized that the men were serious about their threat.
0: Wait, is that the actual... Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Okay, so those of you who don't realize what I just saw, um, there's a picture on the website of someone who's launching a missile. Actually, that is the missile that we're talking about.
1: Her journalist is the one who took this photo.
2: Her photo journalist, Yes, her
1: photo journalist. In the cockpit of the A300, the crew was performing their after-takeoff checklist while climbing out normally. Suddenly, the plane was rocked heavily, and it began to bank heavily to the left. Uh-oh. The bank angle warning kicked on almost immediately. The crew believed that they had struck something at first, but they weren't sure what. Of course, in the chaos, easy to figure, We hit something! I don't know what's going on! It didn't occur to Fun them immediately. Fun fact,
0: something hit you.
1: <laughs> yeah, it did not occur to them immediately what had happened.
0: We won't take a, a quick brick break.
1: Yep, because then we get into the chaos afterward. All right, so we're back. And we're back just in time to keep telling this story, and just about at the point where it starts to get crazy. Chaos seemed to be happening rapidly to this airplane, and the crew had to figure it out very quickly. The flight engineer reported to the captain that the green and yellow hydraulic systems were gone. This is two of the three hydraulic systems on board.
2: So the A300 is built with three hydraulic systems, and they are labeled yellow, green, and blue. So they have lost yellow
1: and green at this point. And this left only the blue system to operate the airplane. In the control tower, one of the controllers noticed that the plane was on fire and making a rapid turn to the left to return. They pressed the SOS button in the tower, notifying the emergency crews on the ground that, they, that there was an emergency occurring and that they had to respond. On the ground, with the journalist, the men were celebrating briefly that they had successfully managed to attack an airplane with a missile. They had fired their missile at the DHL plane, striking it on the trailing edge of the left wing toward the tip. The journalist witnessed everything, and one of the men in the group had recorded the attack and sent it in anonymously to another news organization that spread it around the world within days of the attack.
2: Brand is looking at the pictures, dumbfounded.
1: Yeah, of the plane on fire?
0: I i mean, they're really lucky, because if it had hit the fuselage...
1: It would have been It would have been instant. so
0: much worse, yeah. yeah.
1: But, we're going to keep going here. Back in the plane, the flight engineer informed the captain that the blue hydraulic line was also lost. So now they've lost all hydraulics, which Sounds is entirely a lot
2: like UA232. UA232. <laughs> you
1: are correct.
2: In more ways than you think.
1: Yes. And this, you know, is one of very few instances. This is after UA232. So this is one of very few instances where all hydraulics were lost and this airplane is controlled entirely by hydraulics. So they had no control. The airplane was continuing to climb toward 12,000 feet, but then it began descending on its own. This was because the plane was entering what is known as a fugoid.
2: So the last time we mentioned a fugoid was, in fact, episode one, where we discussed oh. UA-232. Yeah, I don't remember this. That a
1: long time ago.
2: So a fugoid is something that happens when either a plane is not trimmed properly or is in unstable flight having... No effective elevators, horizontal, or vertical stabilizers. It is an unstabilized flight, essentially. What happens is... So, in this instance, the plane is climbing. As it is climbing, it is losing speed. So, the nose begins to tip down. Well, as that happens, the plane gains speed, and as such, begins to nose up with the increased speed. But as it starts going nose up, it's losing the same speed and lift and going back down. So it's oscillating up and down. Yep. Yep. And getting out of it is no easy feat when you have no control surfaces. Not at all. Yeah. Um if you look back, if you listen back rather to UA 232, they had to fight this same phenomenon. And it was also previously known in Japan Airlines flight 123, which we will also cover I think in, in the future. July. We are covering that flight in late August. Oh, okay.
1: wow. There's a waste, away
2: So expect that. That one's going to be a, lot, a high body count. So.
1: We'll get there. The crew was never trained to handle a full hydraulic loss. Most crews on Earth were never trained to handle a full loss of hydraulic systems. Well,
0: they didn't think after UA-232, they fixed the problem of the one hydraulic line, right? So they figured you'd at least have something. Right. Well, and then this isn't a naturally occurring incident. Right. Right. You don't just lose all hydraulic pressure. Right. So in
1: most situations, the airplanes are created so that in a situation where the airplane might fall apart on its own in some way, shape, or form, something might damage the airplane due to itself, that it's going to be in a concentrated area. And the idea is to keep the hydraulic lines from feeding into one concentrated area. The only places that they are concentrated are at the control surfaces,
2: <sighs>
1: which happened to be where they were hit.
2: On fire. Yes. yes. And streaming fuel and hydraulic fluid, all of which is flammable. So this yep. is a fun time.
1: Yeah. From the left aileron.
2: And so with having a damaged left wing also comes, you might have heard us mention earlier that they were hearing bank angle, bank angle from the ground proximity warning system actually and that is because having a damaged wing meant that they lost lift over the left wing when you lose lift over one wing and not the other you begin banking in that direction so they were banking left
1: yep they were having a really high friction on the left wing so yeah because
2: one one wing has
0: more lift than the other
2: yep so they're turning now uh, uncontrollably
1: yep
0: and they don't have any hydraulics, so they can't fix it using other control surfaces.
1: Correct. So, what do we know about UA 232? How did they get themselves under control? Engine power. That's yep. right.
2: So, that is what this crew had to do is use asymmetric engine power. In doing so, they had to have more power on the left engine so that there would to be. To keep more... it up. Yep. And less on the right so that
0: it wouldn't gain more lift than the left.
2: There you go. Right. See, it's like I learned something. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then to fight the fugoid that they were in, in that oscillation pendulum pattern, essentially, that they're in, they're having to do the opposite of whatever the plane is inclined to do. Plane starts ascending, you need to increase power. Plane starts descending and gaining speed, you need to pull back power. Oh, gosh.
0: That would, like, make my brain
2: hurt. Well, and then your throttles aren't equal either. No,
0: so you have to make sure you're not going to screw up one or the other, because then you can have the plane turn uncontrollably or whatever.
1: Yep. So like we said, this is no easy feat. The captain began moving the throttles back and forth to try to stabilize the airplane, announcing, quote, I play with the controls.
2: I mean, that's basically all he could do. (laughs) Yeah.
1: He's playing with the throttles. That's all he can really do. The throttles were the only way that the crew could control the airplane at all, using thrust for both engines to control pitch and asymmetric thrust for roll and yaw. The engines were... We're not damaged in this, thankfully, which is
0: yeah pretty you, lucky. If you see the, the picture of the plane actually flying yeah. with the fire, it's literally on the edge of the wing that they hit.
1: Well, and to be fair, initially, when the air traffic controllers noticed the airplane on fire, they were far enough away they couldn't really tell. The air traffic controllers thought that it was actually an engine fire and not a wing fire because they couldn't tell. I right. thought it and was an engine fire. They
2: dispatched Apache helicopters since, you know, they were circling the airport anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there is footage in the air disasters episode from those helicopters. I don't have access to that footage, you know, because it's a military. Mm-hmm. But they had infrared, and so they could see specifically where the damage was Yep. from the heat of the flames. Yep. Yeah.
1: The first task that the crew had was to get themselves out of the fugoid. This meant applying thrust at both engines— You know, taking thrust away, adding thrust, taking thrust away, and doing so in order just to level out the airplane, try to reduce that fugoid until the airplane was roughly stable. The second task was to bring the wings back to level to stop the turn. They used more thrust on the left engine to level out and less on the right. The crew had realized that they had been shot at this point. While the crew were getting the airplane stabilized and pointing back toward the airport, they were also fearing being shot again. Which was attempted just before the attackers left.
2: They did get shot at a second time.
1: But they were unsuccessful. The journalists witnessed the airplane circling uh, on fire and felt bad for them. But they were all beginning to scatter by this point after their second attempt at hitting this airplane.
2: Now, I do want to emphasize on the part of the journalists. Some of you may be thinking, why didn't you stop them? They're in a terrorist group
0: that can kill you. That's why. That's
1: pretty much it. The journalist said, you know, we're we're only three people out of the dozens that are there. And they said, you know, they've all got weapons and we don't. Exactly. So, it's like if we were Self to try to stop them or do
0: anything.
1: Right. They're they're going to
0: I don't want to die today. Right. That's what that's about. Friends. And you just shot a plane. To be yeah. fair, they got evidence of it, right? So all oh, the yeah. pictures that you see are from the journal, the photojournalists, right?
2: Well, many of them, anyway. You you'll probably find pictures of the plane other than afterwards, yeah. yeah.
0: But the pictures specifically of the terrorists, yep, and the the missile being shot and the plane actually on fire in the air, mm-hmm. that is from the people. The journalist who's actually there, so there you go. Yeah, but please don't be mad at the journalist because they literally
2: we're trying to not die. Yeah
1: yeah and to be fair too she admitted she's like all the way up until the last second when they fired the missile she was not sure if they were kidding or not she she couldn't take them seriously because they were making false claims too to have shot down to having shot down several other airplanes and she hadn't heard anything or anything so she's like no way yeah yeah plus they're also saying we only have three of these missiles so she's like why would you waste one then
2: yep so they had 28 and they alleged to have already fired 25 of them yeah and taken down planes. And that they had three left and we're going to use them. Well, they used two of them.
1: Yep. The Apaches that were circling the airport missed the attackers, but had sight of the A300. They recorded the flaming plane on their infrared cameras, which you can see in the air disasters episode. As I said. Yep. These helicopters were able to inform the crew and the air traffic controllers that it was not the left engine that was on fire, but the wingtip specifically, which was reassuring to the crew because. That meant that they could keep using their engines for control.
0: And not have an engine explode.
1: Yes. That said, the wingtip was becoming very fragile because of this, and they were afraid of performing any heavy maneuvers because it could fold that wingtip over, and then they would have zero control over that airplane. I mean, there's there's basically no way you can recover from that. The first officer asked if he could take the controls, but the captain said no. He had the controls, clearly. The captain then requested that the gear be lowered. This had to be done manually by the flight engineer.
2: Because there's no hydraulics. Right.
1: Yep, he had to use a crank, which took some time.
2: And even then, you still have to wait for gravity to pull it the rest of the way. So, it's a lot of finger crossing and praying.
1: Well, and when you do a manual extension, too, you can't necessarily guarantee that the gear is going to be locked in place, either. Nope. Which was a fear, and we'll get to how bad that actually might be in a minute. Once the gear was down, the airplane lost speed and began to climb rapidly, which put the plane into a brief fugoid again. However, the gear did allow the plane to fly more slowly and much more stabilized. So, Drag. It was was ultimately a good thing that they put the gear down, because it actually caused the airplane to stabilize out. Well, that and you've got, between the drag and then you've got actually two more symmetrical things hanging from the bottom of the airplane that are keeping it stabilized, which is... Good.
2: If I recall, I think the same thing happened with UA-232. Yes,
1: it actually stabilized UA-232, too. And
2: in and in both instances, it's good that they have this additional drag because they don't have access to their flaps and slats, which are controlled hydraulically. hydraulically. Yep. So, either way, they're going to have to land quick because they don't have that extra surface area of the wing, and they have one wing that has lost surface area. Yeah.
1: Right. The captain was afraid about one of the wings stalling, so they requested a long final for landing. The air traffic controller cleared the flight to land. The crew requested that both runways be cleared, and the air traffic controller confirmed that they could land on either runway, 3-3 left or 3-3 right. The flight engineer then reported that the fuel tank one aft was empty. It had been leaking fuel, hence the fire, Yeah. <laughs> from the destroyed wing, as had several other fuel tanks. So they were losing fuel from other fuel tanks quite rapidly.
0: Oh yeah, look at that.
1: (laughs) Yes. Look at all that fuel. Really, really bad. Because what does this mean? Well, this is an added stress to the situation. They began worrying that the tanks could run dry and an engine could stall out. And then they would have no control at all. Because it's the only thing left they have to control the airplane. This would be extra bad. The flight was granted a 20-mile final, and they declared an emergency. The airport was already handling it as an emergency, and the 20-mile final was cleared after the flight crew realized that they were too close on their initial attempt and too high on their first attempt to land. The airplane had a 16-foot crack in the rear wing spar, but the forward wing spar, because this airplane has two, the forward wing spar was still intact. As the flight approached Runway 33 left, the first officer called out the altitudes. The captain was forced to keep the airspeed up to keep the nose up and maintain a stabilized approach, especially since they had no flaps and they had extra drag. Right. So many, so many factors to this. They were at 185 knots on short final, which is or 185 miles per hour, which is 65 miles per hour faster than normal, which is an insane amount of speed to try to land an airplane at especially when you don't know if the gear's going to be reliable or not. You're landing this airplane heavy and fast. They relayed their concern about the landing gear to the air traffic control. Suddenly, on short final, the plane encountered turbulence and some crosswind from the left that caused the airplane to become difficult to control once again. Yes. Alarms started to sound. Sink rate. The airplane was falling quite quickly toward the runway. The airplane began drifting to the left as they touched down hard on runway 33 left. They fell to the left into the dirt and slid for a distance before coming to a stop in a large cloud of sand and dirt. The crew were briefly in shock that they had made it. They had made their landing. They discussed evacuating. Should we evacuate?
2: Yes.
0: Yeah,
1: let's evacuate.
0: <laughs> What's there to discuss? Like just get out.
1: Basically they pulled go. up they pulled up, you know, emergency checklist they're like evacuate 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 yeah. the airplane. Yeah, get us get out of the airplane. Let's get out. Yep. They all kissed the ground once they got down from the plane. However, the emergency crews did respond quickly, and a fire truck pulled up. The fireman was, uh, To
2: give he- them even worse news. Yeah,
1: was yelling at them to give them terrible news. Told the t- the flight crew to stand still. And don't move. As the ground around them and the entire airplane was full of unexploded ordnance.
2: <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh,
0: oh, 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 God. <laughs>
1: Just to add to the mess.
0: I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing hysterically because that's horrifying.
1: It is horrifying. As like, if you
0: thought- don't move. You could be blown to bits at any second. You ah. thought your day
2: was bad before. <laughs> it just yeah. got worse.
1: The fireman in the fire truck did instruct them just to follow along the fire truck's tire tracks because that would ensure that they would make it back to land safely away oh. from this dirt full of unexploded ordnance
2: uh, why is there unexploded ordnance right next to the airport uh-huh
1: yeah. <laughs> well it would be because when the war started it was a war ground. they had i mean they had to take oh. control of this airport from the militants at the beginning of the war so there were bombs everywhere buried in the dirt it
0: makes me think of like vietnam you know, how there's a yeah. bunch of unexploded mines in Vietnam. Well, yep.
1: even in Europe, I mean, they find like thousands, oh, yeah, from, like, thousands World War every II. year. They, I don't remember what it is. It's like they find like a dozen a day or something like that of unexploded things from World War II. when they're digging up for construction projects and stuff all over Europe. That's
2: horrifying. So given their circumstances, it was at this point that the flight engineer turned to his uh, now friends, having been through chaos with them. And was like, I'm retiring.
1: Yep. He was 54 years old, he had a lot of hours, and he's like, you know...
2: I don't want to do this anymore.
1: <laughs> I've had enough experiences in aviation. He's like, taught me a lot, good career. I'm good. Had enough.
0: I, Goodbye. Need, I need to leave.
1: <laughs> made made the landing of a lifetime. And I, I can't stress that enough, because this is the one and only time that an airplane was landed successfully without With no
2: hydraulics. hydraulics.
1: And everybody survived. And uninjured. This that was
2: incredible yeah and it hasn't happened it didn't happen before it hasn't happened since
1: this is truly i mean this is really an unbelievable feat what they managed to pull off is beyond words
0: can you imagine how stressful that cockpit was no getting that plane down do you they probably weren't even talking they were just like so focused on trying not to die yep. yeah
1: and they did a really good job
2: they did they didn't die the yeah. plane didn't
1: explode and as a matter and the of fact didn't explode as a matter of fact the airplane was towed out of the dirt ter- towed to a ramp it was repaired and then listed for sale uh-huh however no one bought it nobody ever bought it i don't they,
2: they were like that's some bad juju plane right there i don't want that so as of the The most recent records we can find of it is that it's still parked at Baghdad International Airport. The most recent photo we could find of it was from 2011. It's definitely been used for parts. The engines are no longer... uh, On the airplane. On the airplane. It's covered in dirt. Yep. It was re-registered under a a new tail number. I believe the new tail number was November 1452. And... As far as we can tell from Google Images, Google Earth, Google Maps, etc., it's still there.
1: I imagine it is. Once it has no engines, probably not going anywhere. It hasn't been re-registered since, so the airplane has been considered scrapped. But it's probably still sitting there, most of it. In well, it's ed. like a American three thirty one, three
0: eighty three, three eighty three, three eighty three. Yeah, I don't know. They all mixed together
1: for <laughs> I know. I know <laughs> the
0: one that's just sitting at O'Hare. At O'Hare. Yeah, yeah.
1: it's pretty much a parts plane at this point. Yeah, 767.
0: Seven. Yeah. So, I mean, once a plane gets to that point where no one wants to buy it or it's not flyable, they just are like, eh.
2: It'll I'll just, just keep it there, there, I guess.
1: I mean, at that point, nobody really wants to pay for it. So yeah. it's kind of just junk.
2: Well, and you think about it. It had wing spar damage. That's structural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like you would never buy a house with structural damage, even mm-hmm. if it's been repaired. Yeah. Buying a plane with structural damage is dicey. Sketch. Uh-
1: and the other problem they face is that most planes are dismantled at specific facilities that are designed to do that. Like, they, they look like, you know, junkyards where they can just do anything to a plane. But the reality is it's actually somewhat of a controlled situation. They tear these—they usually get all the usable parts out of the airplane and then tear the airplane apart in a specific way so that they can use the material. They also try to do it in an, in an area where they're not going to damage anything when they tear apart the airplane this airplane sitting on a concrete ramp, they probably didn't want to damage. And on top of that, you have to get these specific crews with all the specific equipment to come out and tear it apart. So right. the airplane's probably just sitting there as an empty carcass. They got all the parts out of it they really needed, and the rest of it's just left to sit in the dust. Right. So, let's talk about the crew really quick because they, needless to say, pulled off a an incredible, incredible feat. feat they and did a great job. They got a lot of awards for it. I'm going to read this directly from the Wikipedia page. Most reliable of sources. Yes, greatest of all sources. Um, You can also find it in the Air Disasters episode. This is just all the awards and a a run-through of basically what they got. The Honorable Company of Air Pilots jointly honored crew members with the Hugh Gordon Berg Memorial Award. This is awarded to flight crews whose actions contributed outstandingly by saving their aircraft or passengers or made a significant contribution to the future of air safety. Check. Yep. This annual award is made only if a nomination is considered to be of significant merit. The Flight Safety Foundation's FSF Professionalism Award in Flight Safety was presented to the crew members for their, quote, extraordinary piloting skills in flying their aircraft to a safe landing after a missile strike following takeoff from Baghdad, Iraq, end quote. In May 2006, Captain Eric Genot, together with Armand Jacob, an Airbus experimental test pilot, gave a presentation to the Toulouse branch of the Royal Aeronautic Society titled Landing and A300 Successfully Without Flight Controls. Because what an incredible thing. And, it, honestly, and how many
2: people get to do that? Yeah.
1: And the the first officer and the captain are both still young enough to be flying pilots. And they probably still are. Probably. Because this is, I mean, this is really incredible stuff. So all that said, there was some stuff that came from this.
2: As far as I can find, the captain is still flying for the European Air Transport as a captain, uh, based out of Brussels, as far as I can tell.
1: This DHL is also a Belgian registered airplane when, at the time of the accident, by the way, kind of makes sense why the two flying flight crew were from Belgium. Yeah. OO, or Oscar Oscar, is the two leading characters in a registration for anything based in Belgium. Hmm.
2: And then from what I can tell, Steve Michelson, question mark, is based out of Hong Kong, flying the 777 for Cathay Pacific. Nice. Nice. There's
1: a good getup.
2: As much as Cathay Pacific is flying, because COVID sucks. Yeah. Okay, so as far as, we don't, so we don't have findings, we don't have probable Probable cause. cause. Because no report.
0: However... Probable cause. Plane got hit by a missile. A surface-to-air
2: missile. There, there's Caused the plane to become unstable. There you go. They landed the plane. Good there's job. Your, there's your probable cause. Okay, recommendations. Sort of. This is going to go more into safety actions. And actually, take a step back into the past. So, in 1989, what do we know about that year?
1: <clears throat> We've already mentioned it a few times.
2: UA-232. Good job. Yeah. DC-10. So- after UA-232, NASA began investigating how to land a crippled aircraft with no hydraulics. Crippled? That, I mean, that's, that is how the that, that's how they put it? That's how they put it. That is actually a formal term. So they developed a, I don't, I don't. hesitate to say procedure, but something that would help a propulsion-controlled aircraft, or PCA, as they put it. They developed a system where pilots would tell the flight management computer what they want to do. I want to climb. I want to turn right. I want to turn left. I want to descend. Blah, 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 blah. And the plane would do it using just the engines. Automatically.
1: Yeah. So basically, in a worst case situation, they lose hydraulics. The computer is still able to control the airplane and stabilize flight using the engines.
2: This venture was backed by a slightly familiar name, Captain Dennis Fitch. Does that sound familiar at all to you? It does sound familiar. Why does it sound familiar? He was on UA-232. Okay, well, that would be why it's familiar.
1: Yep, Captain Dennis Fitch.
2: NASA implemented this system onto an MD-11 to test and was able to successfully land the MD-11 multiple times without hydraulics automatically.
1: Huh. Yep. Pretty incredible. Yep, and it was a relatively normal landing every time.
2: However, the FAA determined that this should be abandoned because the chances of it ever happening were so slim that it would not justify the cost of implementing it. Now, normally I would be like, okay, cost, really? Safety? Listen. However, it has not happened since. Yeah. yeah
0: this is so rare because they redesigned the airplanes yes. so that if you lose one, you don't lose all. Yeah. Right? So you
2: have redundancy in hydraulic systems. And this was also not a, I don't want to say naturally occurring, but it was not caused by the aircraft. It would not happen in normal flight. Right. Right.
1: That's the one big thing that kind of separates this from the other two incidents where this actually was a problem.
2: This was a criminal occurrence. Yes. yes.
1: So this was completely separate because this is not something that the plane was ever designed for or should ever go through. So this and- is I, this is really a one-off
2: <laughs> in, in those terms, in that regard, landing the plane with everyone alive was kind of icing on the cake.
1: Yes. yes. Absolutely.
2: Agreed. So Also,
0: this was a cargo flight, right? So yep. it's fortunate there were only three people on board. They mm-hmm. were all in the front of the aircraft, they away saved, from where it was. They
2: saved the cargo, right. I mean, for what that's
0: worth. I mean, because... And the fire was also on the very edge of the wing, too. Right. So the plane did not explode. They had... Considering all the bad that happened, they really had a really good situation overall. Because, as I said before, if the missile had hit the fuselage... They would have been SOL. They Yeah, they would have blown
1: up. <laughs> so, and on, so, on top of that, all modern airplanes are designed with hydraulic systems that usually are very, very difficult to take out all of them.
2: Yeah, because they built in redundancies after UA-232 because it was such a big freaking deal. Right,
1: redundancies and separate paths. So each hydraulic system is designed with completely separate paths from one another and so that you, they don't intersect almost anywhere.
2: If you look at the photos of this incident while it was on fire in the air, you will also see that it wasn't just a pinprick area that was affected by this missile. Right, It was over a large area of the wing, therefore yes. all three... Hydraulic systems were compromised. Yeah. This would not happen normally because they don't actually intersect each other. They don't come that close normally. This took a freaking missile.
0: Well, and the pilots obviously were experienced enough to know that they could manipulate the plane using engine power. Which is incredible, given they didn't have a whole lot of experience. Yeah, but they probably, I mean, if you think about it, UA-232 was a big incident. And it, they probably got at least some training in that regard. Yeah. You know, I mean, I feel like because of UA-232, even though there's built-in redundancies, they probably put pilots through an uh, experience where they have to do something with engine power only. Yeah. and, and Or they should in training, so, right?
1: Yeah. So a lot of crews go through that kind of training these days, and that's probably a more apt way to handle the situation because it's almost never going to happen Yep. And anymore, these incidents are so well-known, especially UA-232, by flight crews that most flight crews kind of know how to handle the situation anyway, yeah. if this arrive you know. Because actually, the crew in this DHL flight, that's what they even said, is their mind immediately went to, when they had no hydraulics, they were like, UA-232, we know how they controlled that airplane. Right. And that's what they did.
0: Yep. Well, and good on... You know, the crew of UA-232, I mean, we talked about this in our first episode. We We will always sing their praises. We might revisit that episode at some point, uh, but they did an excellent job figuring out
2: how to control an airplane that was uncontrollable.
0: Yeah. And part of
2: why they were able to do that was because one of the crew members, not official crew members, but Captain Dennis Fitch had practiced it after Japan Airlines Flight 123, which we are covering again in August. Yep. So, there you go. As far as the criminal side of this, the terrorists that sh- attempted to shoot down this A300 were never caught. They And they wouldn't be, right?
0: It's I mean impossible. There's so many yeah. militia, small militia groups at this time in history in that part of the world that it would be impossible.
1: Yeah. So, another little tidbit before we finish up here. um, Another controversial thing that was suggested and isn't necessarily out the window even today is a missile protection system
2: on civilian aircraft. On
1: civilian airplanes.
2: Now, that being said, it's not impossible to implement such a thing. It's not a huge package to carry on board, and it has been implemented on big aircraft such as, I don't know, Air Force One. Uh, The Queen's plane is equipped with such Anti-missile, I don't know, equipment.
1: Yes. And most military cargo planes, most larger airplanes. So, okay, but here's the thing. So, I can see this being needed because there's been quite a few incidents in the last decade, we'll say, of large aircraft, civilian aircraft, being Being shot down. down. MH17 being the primary of those, which killed a lot of people. A flight from Amsterdam to Malaysia, 777 that was shot down over the Ukraine. And then you have, just this last year, the Ukraine International which 737.
0: Fun, fun fact we are covering that in an episode way later, probably October, November, which Christy will now look up exactly when.
2: But we will be doing that. You know, you guys eventually are going to be able to piece together our entire schedule.
1: There was an attempted shoot-down of uh, a 757 as well. And quite a few others. I mean, this this the list kind of goes on. But it is... This is an issue. And I don't necessarily know that that's the right answer either.
2: Yeah. We're covering that in November. November. Okay, see?
0: So I got it somewhat correct.
1: So these systems... Because it's kind of a hairy thing. It's like, how could you design this in a way that's safe for a civilian airplane and effective? Because on, say, a C-130 or a C-17, where they have these, what the airplane does is it projects a bunch of flares. Yeah. Yeah. It it projects like a hundred little flares when it detects a missile. And then the missile's more than likely going to attack one of those flares rather than the airplane can't really implement that on a civil on a civil airplane safely.
0: Well, and to be fair, like a lot of the stuff that's happened happened overseas. So, like in the in the United States, there's not really a reason for us to do that here. Per se, no. Because we don't shoot missiles at our own planes. Now,
2: here is my speculation. If we were ever to be in war times where we as the United States are getting attacked on our own soil, I think this would get implemented.
0: Yeah, so that's a little bit of a different situation, right? Currently, we're not in that kind of a situation. And we and haven't I hope
1: been we...
2: for a really long time. And
1: I hope we never are. I you don't know? think we
2: have been in the age of airplanes at all. No.
1: no. And I hope we never are. That's just... Hands down.
0: I, like, I understand why it needs to be implemented, like, on the Queen's plane or on Air Force One or, you know, even planes overseas. Like, I would understand... For
2: dignitaries.
0: Dignitaries or even putting it on planes, civilian aircraft that do go over war zones and they know they go over war zones. Then I would understand. Such as that Malaysian flight that we just spoke of. Right. Or the, the, the other flight in Ukraine, right? So... I understand doing that. I don't know if we need to do that on every aircraft, because that could end up being expensive. You have to modify aircraft, right? But doing it on specific planes for specific routes, I could understand that. So
2: let us know what you think on that matter. Yeah, because I know I'm that. I'm interested that's a little, to hear this conversation. It's, a little it's controversial.
1: It's hairy. Not to say impossible, but hairy.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can understand the reason behind it, right? But do I think it needs to be implemented on every aircraft? Not necessarily. Not really. Yeah. No. Why spend the money when you don't need to? Yeah. You know. Yes. Especially, you know, us Americans,
2: we love saving money. Yeah. We also like spending money on military stuff. Yeah. uh...
1: Saving money for safety, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So there's multiple sides to it. Let us know what you think. Yeah, I, I would be interested to know.
1: that's it on this one
0: that was the we're gonna call this the d
2: the dhl DHL shoot down attempted shoot down they didn't actually shoot it down okay attempted shoot
1: yep and as a matter of fact that is what uh
0: wikipedia says okay thank you so much for listening as always thank you to all
2: our patrons you guys are awesome thanks again to alan for recommending this yes he's a patron now right nope nope this is quite the
1: unique episode though it's so, okay,
0: Ellen. You don't have to be a patron. No. You are a, a huge listener of ours, but we definitely appreciate you. Yes. Yeah. I just don't remember who's who now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have a, a lot, quite a bit of patrons now. Which, and, quite again, a bit thank of, you.
1: and quite a bit of just active listeners, which we really appreciate.
0: Again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are actually, I meant to talk to you guys about this. We did not get a lot of listener episode stories for April, So, I think what we should do is roll it over to next month and combine May and April. Okay. And then, I think on the newsletter, I put your um, flowering aviation stories, which just means your favorite aviation story.
2: Okay. What we can actually do instead, um, it'll be early May, but we can make it to have an additional episode. We can talk about our uh, aviators trip. Okay. That we're taking. So, you won't get anything extra in... uh, April. Again, also April's been an actual...
0: Cluster. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been rough. So like I said, we're just going to roll that over into next month. Thank you, David, because you're the only one who submitted. Yeah. I think you submitted two stories for April. And we appreciate it. Yeah. But we also don't have enough stories for April's theme to warrant an episode.
1: Yeah.
2: But we'll bring you our own stories in its own little uh, episode. Nick, Brendan, and I are going on an aviator's trip. Then we'll save all our stories to tell Miranda when we're recording.
0: Yeah. And, uh, again, we'll roll it over into next month. So your weather stories will be rolled over into May, which are your um, favorite aviation stories, whatever that may be, your favorite aviation experience, your favorite trip, your favorite flight, whatever. What have you. Yep. So thank you again for listening. Again, keep your eyes open for the merch page on the website. That'll be happening relatively soon.
1: That's exciting.
0: And stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you all next time.
1: Keep your speed up.
0: Please like and follow us on Facebook
2: and Instagram at Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen.
1: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
2: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
2: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.